Okay, did you know uh, that almost every study about human fears, uh, one of the top fears is the fear of death. Maybe you feel it yourself, I'm not sure. Uh, It's one thing to know that you will die. Think about that for a second, because I think the last time anyone did a study on it, the death rate is 100%, right? It's one thing to know that you will die. It's a whole other thing to know how you will die and when you will die. Now, I had a friend uh, yesterday who ran an ultra marathon. You guys know what that is, ultra marathon? These people are insane. Uh, If you ever hear me talk about running an ultra marathon, you will know that is how and when I will die, okay? (laughs) That will kill me, and the when part will probably be like mile two or three. Uh, It's not even going to be a joke, right? This is just, that is it for me. I cannot believe he did that. It was like over 50 miles of running through trails and on rocks and through sand, and it was just unbelievable, right? It's so interesting how so many people are afraid of death when we have no idea how or when maybe that will happen in most cases, but we know that everybody will die. Well, the Gospel of Matthew, which is, by the way, a biography of Jesus' life, according to Matthew, uh, who was one of Jesus' disciples, describes Jesus as being fully aware, not only of the kind of death he would suffer, but even the timing of it. Isn't this interesting? In fact, Jesus predicted his own death in surprising detail four times through the Gospel of Matthew. Yet, as he does this, he appears resolute in the face of death. He's unafraid, it seems. Now, Luke's biography of Jesus tells us that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem just about a week before his death, meaning that Jesus was determined, that he was resolute to endure whatever fate awaited him there. And of course, he knew what was coming. So this picture of Jesus is the picture most of us have. It's the determined Jesus. It's the resolute Jesus. It's the Jesus who is committed to the end, who's faithful to the task. But in Matthew chapter 26, the night before his death, Matthew gives us a different picture of Jesus. Just a different window into who Jesus truly was. And while he remained faithful, for sure, he gives us this image of Jesus that's raw and honest. To the point that we see Jesus even being somewhat apprehensive about his death. So as we study the road to the cross, God wants us to have a deeper understanding, not just that Jesus died, not even how or when Jesus died, but why Jesus had to die. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, where we find Jesus praying, praying in the hour or two before his betrayal, which would ultimately lead to his death. So if you are uh, uh, looking at a Bible with me, uh, I want to invite you to look with me in verse 36 of uh, Matthew chapter 26. And if you need to navigate to that on your phone, that would be just fine as well. Or if you want to look with me on the words on the screen, that would be okay too. So a couple verses from Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36. 
It says, then Jesus came with them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. I'm deeply grieved. Did you hear that? The words of Jesus. Did you see how Matthew described Jesus? Sorrowful, troubled. Let me just set this stage for you. Jesus admits being deeply grieved to the point of death. Luke's gospel even describes Jesus as sweating drops of blood. Now, I hope you've never experienced that, but this is a legitimate medical condition that happens when you're under immense emotional stress, sweating drops of blood. This is not our typical image of the victorious Jesus. And by the way, this is no random garden. It says that Jesus led them to Gethsemane. Uh, now, I was doing some study on Gethsemane this week, but then I had the kind of unique privilege to talk to someone this morning who was actually at Gethsemane this last week. Joel, one of our worship ministry apprentices, is, it was there in Israel. We were praying for him last week, and uh, I was asking him about Gethsemane just briefly. He said it was gorgeous, and uh, we think of a garden as like, what I did yesterday where I was just getting weeds out of my vegetable and flower garden that Jill and I plant usually every year and tilling up the soil. And it's just this little like 30 by 20 area where we plant stuff. That's the garden we think of. This garden was more like a park, right? And Joel even confirmed that for me. This is like a park and uh, somewhat of an orchard where there are olive trees uh, all around. In fact, is kind of a place where olives were grown and then even milled. The name Gethsemane actually means olive press. Olive press. Now, the reason that's important is because this machine, this mechanism, was what crushes an olive so as to extract its oil. And Jesus was about to come under the crushing weight of sin on the cross so that his blood would be extracted as the payment for sin and the source of life. So you can understand now why Jesus is all of a sudden emotional knowing what is about to happen. This is one of the most vivid examples in this Garden of Gethsemane of Jesus being both fully God and fully man. Uh, and in this prayer, uh, we come to understand a little bit more of why Jesus had to die. So let's look at the prayer Jesus prays in this Garden of Crushing. Verse 39, he says, Going a little further... He fell face down and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. 
you will. If there's any other way, Jesus prays, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Now, if you were here last week, you know that as we studied the first half of Matthew chapter 26, we talked about a different kind of cup, another cup. This was the cup of wine, you could say, that represented Jesus' blood poured out for the many, for the forgiveness of sins, we read Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. Now, he gave that cup to his disciples. It was a cup given for them to drink of. It was a cup that represented, it was the symbol of the covenant relationship that he was establishing with him, with his disciples and with all people who had come to him by faith. It was his blood poured out for forgiveness so that people could be restored to God. This was the cup of the covenant, the cup of sacrifice, the cup of his blood. And we understand this cup in light of the Old Testament, right? The covenant of sacrifice and the truth from Hebrews chapter Chapter 9, that there can be no forgiveness apart from the shedding of blood. This is such an important cup because it shows us that the sinless can make amends for the sinful in God's economy. By the way, we're going to actually celebrate this. It's called the Lord's Supper, the body and blood of Jesus, on April 2nd, Palm Sunday. So be here for that day as well. It's going to be a great time of worship. This is such an important cup. The cup of sacrifice, the cup of righteousness that Jesus gives for us. But this cup, the cup that he is praying, God, if there is a way, let this cup pass from me, is a totally different cup. This cup is the cup of God's wrath. Let me show you. Now, when he says, let this cup pass from me, a face value understanding of this cup is that Jesus was just in a difficult circumstance. It would be like a, if we were hanging out and talking with each other, we would probably go, uh, it's just the hand he's been dealt. But that only scratches the surface of what is really happening here when Jesus says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. So just like the first cup where the Old Testament kind of gives us this bigger picture understanding of what's actually happening here, we can also go to the Old Testament again to understand this cup, the cup of wrath. So this cup in the Old Testament, uh, it was a common metaphor actually used among the prophets. And I'm going to give you an example. Um, The prophets warning about God's wrath towards sinful humanity. Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 15 says this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel said to me. This is Jeremiah receiving the word of God. God says to him, take this cup of the wine of wrath. From my hand and make all the nations to whom I am sending you drink from it. Now, that doesn't sound very loving and kind, although we're going to see how loving and kind God is. Even earlier than Jeremiah, this imagery was used in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm chapter 75, in fact. As you keep a bookmark in Matthew 26, I would encourage you to turn to Psalm 75. We're going to look at it for just a minute. But Psalm 75 gives us another uh, picture of this cup of wrath. And it's really, really unique. Uh, In fact, Pastor Andrew over at our Longview campus makes a really good comment on this passage from Psalm 75. He says this. From Psalm 75, he says that Psalm 75 contrasts 
the righteous and the wicked. It describes what the righteous do and what will be done for them. It also describes what the wicked do and what will be done to them. So let's look at what the righteous do. Okay, let's look at verse 1 in Psalm chapter 75. It says, We give thanks to you, God. We give thanks to you, for your name is near. People tell about your wondrous works. This is the righteous. These are people who are upright, who are giving thanks to God. And then skip down to verse 9. It says, again, from the perspective of the righteous, As for me, I will tell about him forever. I'll sing praise to the God of Jacob. So the righteous praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Now, let's look at what the wicked do. Look in verse 4, just kind of right in the middle of that chapter, verse 4 and 5. The psalmist writes, I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn against heaven or speak arrogantly. So what are the wicked doing? The wicked are boasting. They're speaking arrogantly. They're lifting their horn against heaven. Now this phrase, raising their horn or lifting their horn, this is a battle image. This is where we understand that the wicked, by their rebellion, are literally waging war against God. Arrogantly, they're shouting and lifting their horn against God. God, you will not win, is essentially what they're saying. Now, do you think this will sit well with God? (laughs) No. Let's look at what happens to the wicked In verse 6, Psalm 75, the psalmist writes, Exaltation does not come from the east, the west, or the desert, for God is the judge. He brings down one and exalts another. For there is a cup in the Lord's hand, full of wine blended with spices, and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs. Now let's look at verse 10. It says, I will cut off all the horns of the wicked. Remember the horns raised up? I will cut them off, God says. But the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. And Andrew's final comment is this. He says, God is going to cut off the wicked and make them drink a cup of his wrath to the dregs until there's not a drop left. Sinful humanity deserves to drain the cup of God's judgment all the way to the bottom. God will one day pour out this cup of wrath on the wicked. This is the reality. This is the world we live in. This is an eternal truth. This is how God is operating in the world. But with that knowledge, I want you to turn your attention back to Jesus in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus, who has never sinned. Is Jesus righteous or is Jesus wicked? It's not a trick question. He's righteous, right? Jesus is righteous. And so think about Jesus in terms of Psalm 75. Jesus is the one who should be lifted up, right? His horn lifted up. And yet here we see Jesus in the garden and he's deeply grieved to the point of death. He's 
He's literally sweating drops of blood because he personally understands the great offense that sin is toward God. And he also understands the weight of the wrath that is coming on sinners. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Crushing, he is coming to grips with the fact that the only way for wicked humanity to be rescued from the wrath of God is if Jesus takes the cup of the wrath of God and drinks it himself all the way to the dregs. This is why Jesus had to die. He was switching places with us. Switching places. There's a theological term here that I just want to teach you. It's the theological, uh, this is the phrase, substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. Now, a couple of big words, but have a really simple meaning. Number one, substitution. Right, you understand substitution. You probably have had a substitute teacher in your life at some point where someone, your teacher wasn't there. They had to bring in someone else, right, who actually taught your class or Something like that, right? Uh, no offense to you, substitute teachers. Uh, maybe you played sports and you understand you're just like huffing and puffing on the field and you're going, coach, come on, it's time. I need a sub, right? Someone to take my place. Now, atonement is another word we don't quite use as often as substitute, but it's a simple meaning. In fact, the meaning is in the word. I like to teach people this. Atonement, if you spell it out, it, and it sounded out by kind of its syllables, it's, it says at one meant. O-N-E, at one mint. And so really what it means is that Jesus took our place so that we could be restored to at-oneness with God, that we could be made one with God again. That's what atonement means, and this is what Jesus did for us. He took our place so that we could be made at one with God again. This is the heart of Jesus toward you. But don't forget what the end of Psalm 75 said. The horns of the wicked will be cut off. And God will lift up the horn of the righteous. But Jesus is righteous. And on the cross, the one who deserved to be lifted up was cut off. So that we who deserve to be cut off could be lifted up. Not only did Jesus take our place, he reversed the wrath of God towards sin by taking it on himself. Now Jesus makes this great exchange possible. He takes my whole cup of God's wrath, the one that I deserve. This is my payment for my sin, but Jesus takes it on himself. And at the same time, he gives me his cup of righteousness. He shares his cup of righteousness with me. Taking the one I deserve to drink, he drinks it. Giving me the one I don't deserve and cannot earn invites me to partake. This is the good news of Jesus and what he does for us on the cross. He doesn't do this because I deserve it. He doesn't do it because I've earned it. He does it out of his love. In fact, he does it precisely because I don't deserve it and cannot earn it. And the same is true 
for every human to ever live. This is the unconditional love of God. But here's what's interesting is that the unconditional love of God in Matthew 26, it stands in striking contrast to the wickedness of people in Matthew 26. We only read a couple of verses in Matthew 26. If you remember last week, there was a whole lot of scheming going on in Matthew 26 with one little bright spot of of a woman who doesn't get a name, who anoints Jesus with oil. This one little bright spot at the beginning. And then there's another little bright spot at the end of Matthew 26 where we see Jesus taking this cup for us and trusting God even with his very life. But let me just show you an overview of the wickedness in Matthew 26. I hope you'll go back and read this whole chapter, maybe this afternoon. Uh, This was supposed to be a sermon on 45 verses, and so this is my way to cut this down, okay? We're going to cover basically the whole 75 verses of Matthew 26 right now. Are you ready? Okay. We already read verses 36 through 39. This is the wickedness of people. The people Jesus was dealing with the day before his death. You got the religious leaders who conspired to kill Jesus in verse 1 through 5 whose plan to falsely accuse him actually comes to fruition in verses 57 through 68, including mocking and beating Jesus. The disciples ridiculed this woman who sacrificially gave to anoint Jesus in verses 6 through 13. Judas, one of the disciples, secretly sold Jesus out for a measly 30 pieces of silver in verses 14 through 16, and then publicly betrayed him in verses 47 through 50. Peter, the leader of the disciples, by the way, the one ordained by Jesus earlier to be the leader of his church, Peter was predicted in verses 31 through 35 to deny Jesus three times, not just once, but three times that very night. That's a prediction that actually came true in verses 69 through 75. And then you've got the other 10 disciples who were just apathetic toward Jesus when he needed them most. In verses 36 through 46, they couldn't stay awake. The man that they walked with for three years who they'd seen done innumerable miracles, who had you know, literally turned the world upside down in front of their eyes and who had promised that they would turn the world upside down as they followed him even beyond his death. The man who predicted his death several times now is on the eve of his death. And these guys are just going, I just could catch a little shut eye, that'd be great. These guys are just totally apathetic toward Jesus because, you know, and then that, after all that, along with Peter, they all deserted him. Verse 56. That's, that's a lot of wickedness. That's a lot of sin. I wonder, do you feel like a failure when it comes to living a godly life? You ever felt guilty about your inability to keep up with what you know Jesus expects? You ever been an enemy of God? Are you guilty of spiritual apathy? Like it's been several days or weeks or maybe even months since you had some dedicated time with Jesus, studying his word, praying. You ever felt like your prayers just sort of stop and maybe you fall asleep while you're trying to pray? (laughs) Matthew 26 
tells you you're in good company. You're in good company. Human wickedness is rampant. And by the way, let's just call these things what they are. It's wicked. When we're apathetic towards God, it's not that I just am a little backslidden. It's wickedness. It's deserving death. It's deserving the wrath of God. When I choose unholy things, I don't just, you know, skate by and wait till I get better. No, I've chosen wickedness. I've chosen the wrath of God. This is the reality that we face, and this is the reality Jesus was surrounded with. These are people who are choosing unholiness, unrighteousness, choosing wickedness, choosing the cup of wrath over the cup of righteousness. But surrounded by human failure in Matthew 26, people deserving the wrath of God, Jesus trusted his Father's will and followed through as the faithful one taking on himself the wrath that they and we deserve. So this is the truth. There was no other way for sinful humanity to be reconciled to God. This is it. And so Jesus takes the cup of wrath that we deserve, but that's not the end of the story. Like we have said, he will also give you the cup of his righteousness. But you have to take hold of it. And the Bible describes that the way to take hold of the cup of Jesus' righteousness, of his sacrificial death, is by faith. By faith alone. Now, lots of people in East Texas have prayed a prayer along the way, maybe as you were a kid or maybe some church along the way or a revival meeting or whatever. You prayed a prayer that God would save you from your sins and you've got this cup of righteousness, but... I don't know if you had this experience when I was in college uh, and doing college ministry. um, There were lots of parties in college and there were Christians who were uh, trying to, you know, witness at parties and that kind of thing. Or it's like they wanted to go to the parties, but they didn't maybe want to partake or whatever. So there's a lot of conversation about, well, how do you how do you how do you make friends with nonbelievers? How do you go to parties and not, uh, you know, partake in unholiness, that kind of thing? And so there was this kind of advice that, I don't know, it wasn't very good advice, but uh, this advice was for Christians who wanted to go to a party is, is get yourself a red Solo cup and leave it empty and just hang out <laughs> or put tea or Coke in it or something or water or whatever and just hang out. And you know what that does, right, is like it just makes you sort of blend in in the environment. You've got your red Solo cup and you're just sort of like hanging out and, and you just you've got it, but it's not really making any difference for you. It just means you are the same as everyone else, right? Well, I wonder if this is not what's happening a lot in East Texas when it comes to faith in Jesus Christ, where there's a lot of people who maybe have prayed a prayer or done something along those lines, and you're carrying around an empty cup. You've got it. You've got the cup of Jesus's righteousness, but you've yet to truly drink from it. And this is the call of Jesus. You saw it earlier in Matthew 26 when Jesus passes around this cup, this cup of righteousness. He says, take, from, take and drink from it, each of you. Because this is where faith really moves into action. And as James, the half-brother of Jesus, would say in his New Testament uh, book, faith, if it stops at just a belief, is dead. 
But if it leads to action is where real life kind of happens. And so Jesus' invitation with the cup of righteousness is not only I'll take on your punishment, it's also I'll give you my righteousness with an invitation to drink deeply from it. As deeply as he had drunk from your cup of wrath, he invites you to drink deeply from his cup of righteousness. And so what does that mean? It means that your life will change. And it means that you will be different. It means that you will no longer blend in with the crowd, but you will stand out from the crowd. You'll experience new life in Christ because he experienced your death. This is what Jesus invites us to, and this will be your new reality. So I just have four quick things that I want to share with you that can be your new reality as you take and drink of the cup of righteousness. The first is this, is redemption. Redemption. All the times you felt like a failure, Jesus redeems that. All the times you felt guilty, Jesus redeems that. He restores that. He gives that back. He makes it whole again. And this is so amazing. The gospel isn't for perfect people. When we were planting churches in South Dakota, we had this tagline for our church that was no perfect people allowed. And that resonated with people. I mean, we would meet people all over the place and they would see our shirts or our hoodies or whatever and say, no perfect people allowed. They're like, what is that? What's no perfect people allowed? Because it resonates because they understand that they are not perfect. You and I are not perfect. No Christian will ever be perfect. We are failures. But the gospel is for failures. It's not for perfect people. Jesus redeems broken people, failing people. Even Peter, I love this story about Peter in Matthew chapter 26 because this is the guy who's supposed to be the leader of the church. Like he's kind of the de facto head of the disciples. He's in Jesus' top three, right? But then he denies Jesus three times. And if you skip down to the end of chapter 26, all the way at verse 75, it says that he wept bitterly. He realized after he had denied him three times, the rooster crows, the words of Jesus has come true, and he, he just separates himself from life for a moment, and he falls down and he weeps. But that wasn't the end of his story. Because by, that was Thursday night. By Sunday, Jesus died on Friday. By Sunday, Peter has already reconvened with the disciples. And then that's where they get the news from these women that Jesus has risen. And Peter's one of the first of the disciples who make it to the empty tomb. And there's this beautiful picture of redemption. Then in John's gospel, it's this picture of eating breakfast on the shore with Jesus, where Jesus says to Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. He's basically reinstating Peter as the leader of the church. And this is the beauty of the cup of righteousness is when you drink deeply from it, you experience redemption. The second well, excuse me, let me just, almost missed this. This is so important. But the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus in chapter one, verse seven, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful promise. The second reality, when you drink deeply of the cup of righteousness because Jesus has taken on your cup of wrath, is rest. Rest, which is just simply this vivid reminder in Matthew 26 that we can do nothing to earn our salvation. 
We can do nothing to earn God's forgiveness. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. And so if Jesus was willing to drink to the dregs our cup of wrath before we did any ounce of effort to earn it from him, how do we continue living in guilt and shame and a performance mentality in our faith? Uh, Man, we can rest in our salvation. That means we can be open about our sin. That means we don't have to be afraid We don't have to hide. It means we can just relax. Do you know most of the effort of the Christian life today is Christians trying to hide their sin from other Christians and it's totally unnecessary because we're all failures and this is a gospel of redemption and we can be open with one another about even our worst failures because you cannot fail deeply enough that Jesus has not already taken on the wrath of that failure. And he invites you to take his cup of righteousness, which is a cup of rest. As we mentioned earlier, Matthew chapter 11, 28 and 29, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my burden is light, my yoke is easy. These are the words of Jesus to you. Rest. Third thing is this, resurrection. Now, I know it's not Easter yet, but, but this is it. Resurrection is even here in Matthew 26. Matthew 28 is where the actual resurrection of Jesus happens. We're going to get there here in a few weeks, but resurrection is here in chapter 26 as well. You may have even missed it because it's a small verse that can be quickly passed over. In fact, the disciples didn't even acknowledge hearing it uh, when Jesus said it in verse 32. But he says in verse 32, if you've got it open still, he says, After I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. They didn't even acknowledge it. They just kind of, you know, kept going. Then Peter was like, I'll never deny you, right? And then he did eventually. But how do they miss this? Because Jesus has predicted his death, and now he's predicting again his resurrection. Well, after the resurrection, when the women were at the tomb, Jesus told them in Matthew 28, uh, I think it's verse 7, he said, said, go uh, and tell the disciples to head to Galilee where I'll be waiting for them, as I have already told them. Well, he had already told them. They just spaced on it. They missed it. And we might have missed it too if we're just reading through Matthew 26. But the reality is the empty tomb was only possible because Jesus emptied the cup of God's wrath. And so this sets the stage for Easter coming up, but also teaches us this reality of existence and life with God that you cannot have resurrection without death And embedded in this reality is a promise to you and a promise to me, a promise to every believer in Jesus. Whatever you're enduring, whatever you're suffering, whatever loss you have incurred, whatever sacrifice you have had to make for the sake of Jesus Christ, resurrection is coming. Not just the resurrection of Jesus, your resurrection. The resurrection of everything good and holy When at the end of time, all evil and and sin will be punished and cast away and God will restore everything to himself. All things reconciled, all things made new. That means resurrection. Resurrection is coming. It's not just a moment in history to be celebrated as we will celebrate it in a couple weeks. Resurrection is a present reality to be experienced and it's a future reality to be anticipated. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. It says, We who live are always being given over to death 
for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh, this present reality of resurrection. It says, for we know that the one who raised our Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus. Therefore, we don't give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. Our momentary and light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we don't focus on what's seen, but on what's unseen. For what's seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so Jesus takes your cup of wrath, hands you his cup of redemption and sacrifice, and he says, this is a cup of resurrection. This is a cup of new life to be experienced. The last thing is this, and it's what this cup is. It's what Jesus calls it. It's the cup of righteousness. The gift of Jesus' righteousness is also a call to righteousness. It's a call to righteous living. The Bible says, be holy as I am holy. Psalm 75 shows us what this righteous life looks like, right? It's a life of praise. Not just of singing on a Sunday, but a life that is defined by God being your sole object of worship. Where everything about you lifts him up rather than lifts yourself up against him. This is what Psalm 75 is about, wicked versus righteous, right? Do you lift yourself up against him or do you lift him up and yield and submit to him so that he will lift you up? That's the call to righteousness. I love the the hymn, It Is Well. The third verse, it just gets me every time. It took me a long time in my Christian life to really understand what it was saying, but the words say, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. The bliss, the happiness, the joy, the excitement of the thought, a glorious thought of my sin? Well, if you stop there, that makes no sense. But as you keep singing, it says, my sin, not in part, but the whole Like, not just part of who I am, not just part of my, but all of my sin, past, present, future sin, all of it is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. You see, the glorious thought, the bliss, is not the thought of my sin. It's the thought of my sin being nailed to the cross completely. Jesus drinking the wrath of God that I deserved to the dregs so that he could give me his righteous life and call me to a life of righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the good news of Jesus. A moment in the garden of crushing opens us up to the reality that Jesus was crushed for us. 
even 700 plus years before this in Isaiah chapter 53, it would talk about Jesus being crushed for our iniquities. To pay for our sin. The question is, which cup are you going to take hold of? Are you going to keep your cup of wrath? Or you let Jesus take it for you and take his cup of righteousness, which will change everything about you, including your eternity? Pray with me. God, we, I'm floored by this reality. I don't understand why you would do this for us. And I try to comprehend your love for me, and it is unbelievable. And so, I'm, God, make the choice over and over again by faith to believe that what you say is true is true, that you paid my price for sin. You paid my penalty. You paid my debt. And you give me eternal life. You give me a restored relationship with you. You give me your righteousness imputed into my life. I don't deserve that. Can't earn it. So I'm just floored by it even again. God, help us be a people who carry and drink deeply from your cup of righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.